Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Kenneth Bornilsen. I'm a social anthropologist based in Oslo and also one of the leaders of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. In this episode, we focus on gender and climate change adaptation in Bangladesh. Bangladesh is, as we know, among the countries most at risk from the negative consequences of climate change. Indeed, it's a country that is often spoken of as the ground zero for climate change. And in recent years, more attention has been devoted both by scholars, but also by practitioners and activists to grappling with the question of how gender intersects with climate change and with adaptation. To learn more about this issue, we are joined today by Katinka Fossum Evertsen, who is formerly speaking a sociologist, but who works in very cross-disciplinary ways and who also has many years of experience from Bangladesh. She also recently, by the way, defended her PhD thesis at Nord University in Norway. It was titled Negotiating Gender in Climate Change Adaptation. Welcome, Katinka, and also congratulations on a successful PhD defense recently. Thank you, Kenneth. As the saying goes, there is no better place to study climate change adaptation than Bangladesh, right? But tell us a bit more about the context of climate change adaptation in Bangladesh as it looks at the moment today. What does climate change adaptation look like in Bangladesh? Sure. Just to clarify to our listeners first, climate change adaptation is efforts meant to respond to or to prepare for negative consequences of climate change. And so your question is what such efforts looks like in Bangladesh at the moment. And this is an important question, but unfortunately it has no clear answer. Rather, there is this ongoing discussion in the country right now, also in interaction with the international community, about what climate change adaptation is and should look like. And one question is whether and how it differs from traditional development aid. And I think this is in many ways a key question because climate change adaptation in Bangladesh must be understood not only in relation to the country's standing as climate change ground zero, it must also be understood in relation to the country's history with aid. And the country has been dubbed the world's aid lab, referring to how the country has been dependent on aid, but also how the country has been a success story for development with the slogan, if Bangladesh can do it, anyone can. And indeed, Bangladesh has done it, right? Now aiming the goal of reaching middle income status. And the goal is now looking a bit further away after COVID and the war in Ukraine. But it has impacted the aid community in Dhaka, And this brings us back to climate change adaptation, because what is a bit unique, I think, about Bangladesh at the moment is that the aid that is coming in has to, to a larger and larger degree, be about climate change, because this is the only funding still around for the aid community to apply for, as aid for traditional development aid is drying up. And as the symbol of ground zero for climate change, it again becomes the slogan that if Bangladesh can do it, anyone can, right? So people are starting to talk about Bangladesh as an adaptation lab, 
So you get this situation where everyone has to work on climate change. So the question again is, what does this do to what aid projects look like in Bangladesh? And as I has mentioned, this is not a question that is easy to answer. And some people would argue that, and rightly so, that much climate change adaptation is just development under a new name. But still, there are some new lines that has to be drawn as to what counts as climate change adaptation and what has to be dismissed as just normal development aid, if you like. And so this is sort of the status at the moment. And I think we'll get back to some details later in our conversation. But before we get on to that, I spoke briefly about this intersection of climate change adaptation and gender in my opening vignette. And of course, that wasn't coincidence because your thesis is in a sense all about this intersection. No? First up, I wanted to know more about what motivated you to look at this topic in particular, this intersection between gender and climate change adaptation. Yes. And as you mentioned in your opening, there is this slow but steady increase in the interest around the question of gender and climate change, right? But to be clear, uh, this has been included in climate change conversation and both in research and policy quite late. And something that I've been interested in for quite some time now is how gender tend to be included in research and policy, when and how it happens. Because this is not just random. There are many interests at play in this. And so this overarching interest in many ways, I think, influenced my research project about gender and climate change adaptation in Bangladesh. And so my work differs slightly from most research that has been done on gender and climate change so far, which has mostly been about whether and how the two are related, how the effects of climate change may affect men and women differently. And quite a lot of research has shown that indeed it does. And so then the next question is what should be done about this? That's where climate change adaptation comes in with the question of how gender should be incorporated into such efforts. And that's pretty much what I've been asking in my work. And so I went to Bangladesh and I spent two months in Dhaka participating in different stakeholder events about climate change adaptation and interviewing experts and aid practitioners about their work. And what increasingly caught my attention there was not only what the different projects looked like in relation to gender, but how gender was talked about, or more specifically, how women were talked about. And this tended to follow a certain set of storylines. And it's sort of those storylines that I follow in my work and what those storylines mean for how climate change adaptation is carried out and ultimately what it means for the women in question. Before we move on to hear more about the outcome of your research, this is a Nordic Asia podcast, so many of our listeners will have at least a fair understanding of contemporary Bangladesh. But before we move on, could you give us a bit of context? What kind of gendered social landscape is it that climate change adaptation has to navigate in Bangladesh? Yes. So Bangladesh has, as I already mentioned briefly, been celebrated for its development. And an important part of this story, to stick to the ideas of storylines, is the role of women. And this story goes all the way back to the independence war and its aftermath. And listeners to this podcast know that gender norms in Bangladesh is governed by the concept of purda, the idea that women's honor is exchanged for men's provision and protection. And so this sort of broke down during the early years of independence, where it's estimated that between two and 400,000 Bangladeshi women were raped during this war. And 
In addition to this, there were several circumstances which made it harder for men to provide for the women in their family. And finally, we saw the famine in 1974. And so it became necessary for the new state to rehabilitate women who had been raped during the war and otherwise also to provide for women who needed it. And so women became symbolically important to the project of nation building in Bangladesh. And even the nation itself was cast as a mother figure, right? And this further made the state the patriarch, which was responsible for its citizens and especially its women's provision and protection. So this process of rehabilitation of women after the war, and I'm relying on Naomi Hussain here, can even be said to have laid the foundations for Bangladesh role as the international aid lab. Because what happened was that this rehabilitation happened at the same time as this shift in development thinking in the early 70s, where one started to argue for how women could contribute to development if they were just helped to do so. So when the international aid community arrived in Bangladesh after the independence war in the early 70s, the result of this meeting between international development thinking and the need to provide for and protect poor women in Bangladesh was this translation into Bangladesh more long-term development narrative where the international aid community drew attention to the connections between gender relations and the reproduction of poverty. So the idea was that one could improve the condition of poor women. This would be good for the economic development of Bangladesh because a better off population is a more productive population. In short, this symbolic importance of poor women has continued to play an important role in the development narrative up until today, and it continues to do so. This forms an important backdrop to understanding how women are now being integrated into the climate change adaptation work currently taking form in Bangladesh. Well, this brings me on to something I really wanted to talk to you about, and this is, of course, also one of your main findings or one of your main arguments coming from your research, namely that when gender is discussed in the context of climate change adaptation, very soon we end up speaking almost exclusively about women in the sense that it's women that are constructed as subjects of risk within this framework. And if I understand you correctly, by this you mean that women are constructed as subjects at risk who need to be targeted for climate change adaptation, but also as subjects who are expected to adapt to climate change at the same time. How and why does this almost uh, double dynamic happen? So there are many reasons why we end up speaking of women instead of gender. And one thing that happens that contributes to this is this need for aid organizations when they're carrying out their projects to show that they're aiding those who need it the most. They're supposed to help the most vulnerable. And so this has become this whole thing where they're trying to identify characteristics of who are the most vulnerable. And gender has been one such characteristic, but the focus has not been so much on the relationship between men and women, which is gender but on the characteristics of women who are vulnerable. And so you get this idea of the vulnerable woman. And so to return to the storylines that I followed in my work, there are usually two findings from research on gender and climate change that circulates also in policy and development circles in Dhaka concerning what to do about gender and climate change. And the first is that women are more vulnerable than men when faced with consequences of climate change and therefore initiatives must be taken to protect and to empower them. 
And the other answer is that men and women play different roles in the responses to negative consequences of climate change. And that therefore women need to be included in such efforts because they hold this particular experience that is needed in order for communities to adapt well. So then the issue becomes, how can we protect women from negative consequences of climate change? And how can we turn them from being vulnerable victims into becoming agents that can help communities adapt? And we recognize these ideas, right? That women need protection and provision and the idea that it's good for development if women can contribute from the history of aid in Bangladesh that I described earlier. Now this translation is happening where these ideas are made to fit with ideas of climate change adaptation as funding is now shifting towards climate change really fast. And so what I suggest in my work is that we're now starting to see a new outline of representation of women where rural poor Bangladeshi women are represented as both the problem and the solution to the climate problem. So these two representations, like you said, is sort of this double representation. So they seem contradictory, but actually they're closely linked because you need a problem in order to have a solution. So by promoting the idea of the vulnerable woman who needs to be aided, one can also promote the success story of the woman who has been empowered and is contributing to helping her community adapt. And so this is how women become subject at risk from climate change and therefore become the most obvious targets for climate change adaptation projects. But what also happens in this process when the focus remains only on women and not on the relationship that they're part of, is that they're also left with the responsibility to adapt. And the climate change adaptation projects will help them do so. This might result in climate change adaptation projects, which actually adds to women's workload, as feminist development scholars have warned against since like the 80s. <laughs> so it looks like the history might be repeating itself. But it also has to do with politics, right? This tendency also in development initiatives to dodge or perhaps even avoid issues that are somehow considered political and to focus instead on so-called technical approaches and solutions. Absolutely. And here we can point to another reason, right, why aid projects, including climate change adaptation projects, tend to focus on women rather than on gender relations. Because the whole idea of introducing the concept of gender into development thinking was to shift the focus towards the unequal power relationships between men and women, rather than focusing on how women are the problem that needs fixing. So, you know, feminist activists pointed to power relations and basically how we organize society. And this is, of course, a very political question. But political questions are much more demanding to work with because there will always be hard choices and compromises between different interests. And so while we're now sort of, we're using the term gender more, but we're still really talking about women because the political dimension of the question often has to be left out, which in itself a political act, right? And so this issue, as you say, is also well known from development and development studies. Aid can never be political because aid actors cannot do anything which the government in the country where they're working does not approve of. And therefore, they have to stick to initiatives that are not political and, as you say, are often called technical fixes like infrastructure. And so to give an example of 
how this works, one of my research participants explained that they chose what issues to work with based on what the headquarter of the donor organization that he worked with was interested in and where these interests overlapped with the interests of the Bangladeshi government. So then the question is, where is the overlap? So gender is one donor requirement and climate change is quickly becoming another. And for the government, economic development is really important as this has long been a key election promise. So if you put these three interests together, gender, climate change and economic development, then the political consensus becomes to focus on skill training for poor women for them to earn an income. Because this can be said to be good for the economy of Bangladesh, it can be said to empower women, and it can be said to be adapting to climate change because poverty is seen as the biggest cause for vulnerability to climate change, right? So here you see how political interests shape how the issue is approached. But when it's presented as a win-win, it also obscures the political priorities involved. And it's not always clear that women are empowered by these projects as long as unequal gender relationships are not made a political priority in its own right. If I may just shift the discussion just a slight bit. What I liked about your work is that you don't limit yourself to doing a discourse analysis in the conventional sense. I don't say this to put down discourse analysis, which I think is both important and highly valuable in its own right to show how certain ways of speaking and thinking about climate change, adaptation and gender create specific subject positions for men and women at the level of discourse. But what I wanted to ask, you go to great length to also point to how these discursive practices have real-life consequences when it comes to unequal gender relations. Could you tell us a little more about this particular aspect of your research? To answer that question, I'll give an example from a village that I visited to learn about the work of a climate change adaptation project that was implemented there. And this project was very concerned with identifying and aiding those who were the most vulnerable to effects of climate change. And so they had this list of criteria that they followed to identify this group. So gender was one of the main criteria, and not surprisingly, they said that they were very concerned to aid women. And this turned out to be a very specific group of women, which were women who lived without a male income earner. So in other words, women who were living without the protection and provision of a man in accordance with PERDA norms. And this makes them more vulnerable to climate shocks because they tend to have a lower income than households that have more male members that can work and therefore also tend to live in more hazard-prone locations. And women living outside of this PERDA protection is associated with stigma and it became a sort of a village problem, right? Demanding a solution. It was like a lower limit of what conditions it was acceptable that women of this village had to live in. So what happened was that the climate change adaptation project took on the role as the male provider and protector for these women, sort of as the state recast itself as the patriarch to protect women after the war, right? And so these women were typically given some livelihood support, water, sometimes even materials for a house. 
But the project did not really give them income opportunities as such, although this is often what it says on paper, giving women skills training so they can earn a living. And this is because going out to earn an income is a man's responsibility, right? And women doing men's work is again stigmatized. So that's not seen as helpful for these women, just adding to their stigma. So there is a paradox here, right? Because while the project can, of course, be said to aid these women in their daily lives, what it's also doing is keeping them in the exact same position. And so one of the project workers said, we're keeping these women afloat. So nothing more and nothing less. And so getting back to your question, this discursive idea of the vulnerable woman or women as subjects of risk has real-life consequences in the sense that it interacts with the social dynamics in the village and it confirms the idea of these women as vulnerable that are in need of protection and provision. And so what the Climate Change Adaptation Project is in effect doing then is that they aid women who are not living in accordance with PERDA to do so. And by doing so, they're confirming existing gender norms and upholding status quo. And this goes back to how aid projects like these can not often really change social relations. They must adapt to the actual context in question. So this becomes the pragmatic response because the issue in question is at the fundamental level political and so it's sort of outside of the mandate of the project. Katinka Fossum, Mewatsen, thank you so much for joining us today and shedding light on the gender dynamics of climate change adaptation in Bangladesh. And also, more generally, thank you for accepting the invitation to be part of this episode of the Nordic Asia podcast. My name is Kenneth Bonilsen, and thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.